The title of this morning's message is Steer Clear of the Adulterous Path. And you might be wondering, you know, last time, last time you were up here, Thomas, we just covered adultery, didn't we? I mean, so, and have we been covering this a lot? Well, yes, because it's in the Word of God, and we're just making our way through it. And Solomon thought it best to really drill it into his son. He wanted, above all things, probably the most important thing he wanted to get into his head was to warn him about the danger of the forbidden woman, the enticements of sexual sin. So as we look in, in chapter 7, and we're going we're gonna to cover the whole chapter, um, and as far as uh, what's contained in the book of Proverbs when we're, we're talking about this subject, this is actually Solomon's third and final lecture to his son on this matter regarding the forbidden woman, the seductive adulteress who has been a serious moral threat to every red-blooded male in every generation since the fall. So this is the third and final lecture. Solomon made mention of this type of woman back in chapter 2 in his lecture to his son on the importance of diligently pursuing godly wisdom. The lecture was on the pursuit of wisdom, diligently pursuing it, seeking God's wisdom. And in that lecture, he, he made mention of the forbidden woman. And he told his son that wisdom would deliver him from not only the evil influence of ungodly men, and, but also from the wicked enticements of the forbidden woman, who he says is a, a smooth talker. Woman with smooth words. She's a smooth talking adulteress who has no regard for her husband or for God. And then in chapter 5 is where Solomon gives his first lecture that is devoted entirely to warning his son about the forbidden woman. He tells him that he must keep his way far from her and to not even go near the door of her house, to void her altogether. Solomon tells his son that he must not only flee from the charms of the adulteress, but that he must also, what, run into the arms of his wife. He tells him to rejoice in the wife of his youth and to continually get all of his sexual refreshment from her, this lovely woman with whom he's entered into an exclusive, lifelong covenant of intimate companionship, this bond that is blessed by God this relationship in which God has joined them together. And then in chapter 6, we saw Solomon's second lecture concerning this forbidden woman in which he warned his son of the severe, inevitable, self-destructive consequences of adultery. Solomon warned him that he must not desire this woman's beauty in his heart and allow himself to be captivated by her. Remember, the battle begins where? It begins in the mind. It begins in the hearts. Don't even desire her beauty, lest you be captivated by her. And so keep this in mind. Solomon's son, and we've, we've mentioned this before, along with every other Israelite, was well aware that God commanded, you shall not commit adultery. He knew that it was wrong. His conscience would have affirmed that basic moral fact, and, and the same is true for us as well. We know that it's wrong. We know the Word of God says that. And even if we didn't have the Word of God, our conscience would testify to the fact that it is evil. However, simply knowing and believing that something's wrong does not mean that one is not vulnerable 
or susceptible to being tempted and persuaded to do that very thing. And so, this is why godly wisdom is so important. This is why we are going through the book of Proverbs. And any counsel from the Word of God is His wisdom for us that we might live lives worthy of Him and be rescued from these snares, these pitfalls in this fallen world that will ruin us. Solomon's seeking to give his son a, a keener eye, and us, a keener eye to, to spot the sources of temptation and to recognize them in all their shapes and forms so that he might avoid them altogether and give no opportunity to sin. He wants him to be watchful and to be wise and discerning. He needs the wisdom of God to make him more aware of these traps. Solomon wants his son, he wants his son to be thoroughly warned and equipped against the temptation to commit sexual sin. Especially the grave sin of adultery. And to him, one lecture is certainly not enough. So, here in chapter 7, we, we've come to the third lecture. It's the third full-blown lecture to his son concerning this woman who is a serious moral threat to his soul and to his marriage and to his devotion to the Lord. And as in his previous lectures, Solomon begins by urging his son to receive and retain the instruction he's about to give him. So read verses 1-3. through three. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your hearts. As Solomon's told his son before, he must personally embrace and internalize the wisdom he is giving him in order to, for it to stick with him and to do him any good. You hear from God's Word a lot, but unless you receive it, embrace it, and internalize it, it's not really going to do you any good. Simply hearing godly instruction will not benefit you unless you make the effort to store it up in your mind and ingrain it into your thinking so that it's always readily available and accessible for you to apply in your daily life. What do you think happens when temptations come? Are you equipped? Are you just going to carry your Bible around? Is that going to do you good? Say. Where is it? What does God want me to do right now in this moment? I forget the verse. If only I did that scripture memory system. And we need to internalize it. We need to internalize it so it's readily available, accessible. It dwells in us richly, and it will equip, equip us so that we might have a defense against temptation when it comes. So, Solomon tells his son to keep his teaching as the apple of his eye. Again, some of this is familiar. He's, he's stated these things before, so we want to we hit on some of the things that are new in this passage. And he says to keep his teaching as the apple of his eye, that is, the, the center of his eye, his pupil. And the Hebrew word for keep here means to preserve and protect, to watch over and take care of. So in other words, 
this godly wisdom that his father is giving him should be as precious to him as his eyes. You know, we go to, we go to great lengths to protect our eyes, don't we? Shield them, take care of them, protect them. And we would do everything we possibly could in order to keep them, wouldn't you? You don't want to lose an eye, do you? It's one of the worst things that could happen, you can imagine, right? Lose an eye? They're precious. So we go to great lengths to care for them, to guard them, in order that we might keep them. And we consider them to be precious, and the same should be true with our perspective regarding on God's Word, God's wisdom. God's wisdom should be as precious to us as our eyes. That's what the point of this illustration. Not only must we esteem it highly, consider it precious, valuable, we must also love it dearly. Look at verses 4 and 5. Solomon says to him, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Now, some of you might be thinking, I don't really like my sister. Um, but the word sister here was a common romantic term of endearment. So he's, he's in the ancient Near East. So he's, he's not referring to his sibling here. Solomon's encouraging his son to cultivate a, a close, intimate relationship with wisdom uh, as, as a, as a, essentially as his bride, so to speak. He wants him to cultivate a close, intimate relationship with wisdom as a defense against the enticements of the other woman, the forbidden woman. The more he loves and cherishes and is devoted to godly wisdom, the more he will be protected from the smooth words of the adulteress. The less susceptible he will be to temptation in this area. And really in any area of temptation, any area of sin, the more we consider the wisdom of God and His instruction to us and how we are to live, the more we love it and cherish it and are devoted to it, the more our guard is going to be up against temptation. The less susceptible we will be to those pitfalls of sin. So Solomon proceeds to share with his son then an incident that he personally witnessed where a foolish young man did the exact opposite of what he's been telling his son to do with regard to the forbidden woman. So, starting in verse 6, 6 through 9, we'll read that. He says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a a man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So how does he know that this one particular young man was lacking sense? Did he just kind of look stupid? Well, he could tell by the fact that he was going towards the forbidden woman. He was heading into her neck of the neighborhood. He was going near her house. What was Solomon's instruction to his son earlier? Wasn't it the exact opposite? 
Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. This is literally the exact opposite of what he said. To make matters worse, when was he going? He's going at the worst possible time. He's going towards her house at night when it was dark outside. Solomon says it was in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. He's emphasizing the point. What in the world is this guy thinking? No sense. He was senselessly wandering into the wrong place at the wrong time. He was putting himself there. You know, we have that saying, wrong place at the wrong time, like it's coincidence. This guy was putting himself into this situation. Instead of being cautious, he was being careless. He was leading himself into temptation. He was putting himself there in these circumstances. And Solomon does not say that the young man was intentionally seeking to meet with her, but it's clear that he was not seeking to avoid her either. And it could be that he's just demonstrating a lack of common sense by passing through her part of town at night, just completely oblivious, senseless, and just kind of wandering. It could be that. It could be more than that, though. It may be, and again, I'm speculating a little bit. It may be that she caught his eye earlier. And because he desired her beauty in his heart, he redirected his steps and went in her direction so he could catch another glance and let his desire linger some more. Maybe no intention to do anything, but just kind of enjoying that indulgence. Either way, his foolishness is leading him straight into moral danger. Straight into an encounter with the seductive adulteress. And in verse 10, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of hearts. So she's dressed provocatively in a way that aimed to capture his attention, stimulate his mind. However, we also read that she's wily of heart and the Hebrew literally says that her heart is guarded. What does that mean? Well, we kind of see a similar phrase in chapter 4 where Solomon told his son, you need to guard your heart. But for her, rather than guarding her heart in order to protect her from wicked influences and evil desires, she's guarding it in order to conceal her wicked schemes and evil intentions. And as the Holman Christian Standard Bible translate it, translates it, she has a, a hidden agenda. A hidden agenda. The truth is that she's out to satisfy her own sensual lusts and he looks to her like an easy target. Someone she can manipulate to get what she wants without a care as to what it might cost him. So she's on the hunt. He's her prey. She does not see him as a potential partner in crime so much as an acceptable casualty. To indulge her own sinful lusts. In these verses, Solomon then pauses, once we get to 11, to make some additional comments in order to further describe this woman before telling us what happens next. Verse 11, he says, She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. The New American Standard Bible translate, translates the first part this way. 
She is boisterous and rebellious. And the idea is that she's, she's unrestrained. Not just a, a loud mouth, that's not what he's talking about. Not just a loud volume-wise, but she, she's restless, she's unrestrained, unruly, and wayward. NES says rebellious. She is defiant. She is defiant. She defies her husband, and she defies God. She despises God's design and purpose for marriage. Solomon said in chapter 2, she forsakes the companion of her youth, and she forgets the covenant of her God. It's meaningless to her. She forsakes her husband by being unfaithful and going after other men, because she's still married. She forsakes him by breaking that covenant, by being unfaithful. Although she is shamelessly unfaithful, she remains married to her husband. You might think, why? What's the point of that? Well, not because she loves him, right? Only because he is useful to her. That would be why. He's useful to her. By being married to him, she has a home, wealth, security, privilege. She keeps up appearances and plays the part of wife in order to get what she wants from him, her husband. However, when he's not around or not looking, she's on the prowl and in pursuit of sensual indulgence. He's useful to her, and then she finds other men useful when he's not looking. Her heart is outside her home. It's outside her marriage. It's desiring the world, and therefore her feet follow after it. Her feet do not stay at home. Verse 12, Solomon says, further continues this description of her, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. And the Hebrew literally says, a foot in the street, a foot in the marketplaces, and beside every corner she lies in ambush. She's pictured here like a hunter stalking her prey, waiting for the right moments. She's got her bases covered. I'm going to go where I need to go. I know what to look for. She's observant. She's cautious, unlike her victims. So if we are being wise, then we will be watchful and careful not to put ourselves in situations where we will most likely face sexual temptation or any temptation for that matter sadly the young man solomon saw through his window this particular night he lacked sense he didn't have wisdom and he walked right into that trap and then we read this accounts of her seduction Verses 13 to 20, she, starting in 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come. Let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. 
for my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. So notice how she starts out. And again, this is a description that equips us because it's telling us how how this kind of stuff plays out, how temptation works, how seduction works, enticement. How does she start out? Well, she comes to him in in provocative attire and then grabs him and kisses him. Forward much? Right? She hooks him by appealing to his sight and to his sense of touch. But it's by her smooth words, her seductive speech, that she starts reeling him in. Right? Men are visual creatures. Physical touch, you know, those things can set you off perhaps, right? Got the hook in there. Smooth words. Smooth words. That's how she reels him in. And she delivers these words with bold face, the text says. And really, the idea there is without any hint of shame. Without any hint of shame. Boldly. Forward. The first thing she says to him seems rather odd and out of place, don't you think? Mm. I mean, when you think of seduction, offering sacrifices and paying vows, it probably doesn't come to mind. So what's all that all about? What is she, uh, what's she talking about? Well, a more literal translation of verse 14 would be this. Peace offerings were due from me. Today I've paid my vows. You okay? Well, under the Mosaic Law, there were different types of offerings that God prescribed for His people, the people of Israel, to give to Him as an act of worship, as a, as a demonstration of their fellowship with Him. One type was a peace offering. And it involved sacrificing in the presence of the Lord either an animal from the herd or an animal from the flock or a goat. However, with these, this type of offering, a peace offering, only a small portion of the animal was actually burned on the altar and the large remaining portion was eaten by the offerer. This was a, a unique kind of offering, one in which really it was for the purpose of sharing a communal meal with the Lord. You bring your offering, just a small portion goes, the rest is cooked and you eat. as a sign of fellowship with God. And then what was left over was taken home and finished. Now, there were actually three kinds of peace offerings. If we look in the Old Testament, we'll see, okay, there's Thanksgiving offerings. These are all peace offerings. So we have peace offerings of Thanksgiving. We have the votive offerings. That means the, the pay a vow. They're for the purpose of paying a vow, so you would do a peace offering for that purpose. And there were free will offerings. So we have three different kinds. And what the woman says in verse 14 The fact that she says she had to offer these, they were due from her, and then obviously she says, I've paid my vows, we can conclude that she's speaking specifically or referring to these votive peace offerings, uh, the peace offering that would be in payment of a vow, because a free will offering, there wouldn't be an obligation there. And a Thanksgiving offering, perhaps there would would be some due there, but she specifically mentions vows. And so here's what some of what the law says regarding this particular kind of peace offering. 
in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. But if the sacrifice of his offering, and it's referring to peace offerings in this particular type now, if it's a vow offering or a freewill offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. So, all that to say, when the woman tells the young man that she had to make peace offerings and that it was that day that she had paid her vows, what she's implying is that she's got a freshly prepared feast at her place and he's invited. It's like the old saying goes, I mean... The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I know there's all these people online like, that's not true. Okay, I don't know. See, I got, I got steak and shrimp. Well, she wouldn't say shrimp, but, you know, it's enticing. It's appealing. All right, by the way, as a side note, so, so there's her first, first word. I'm just going to mention that. I got a full meal, got a feast, I got a feast, and I'm, I want you to celebrate with me. It's a festive occasion. Now, as a side note, with this, this mention of, of the offering of sacrifices and paying vows, I mean, this indicates that she's what? She's religious. She's part of the community of God's people. She's among the people of God. Men, you, you can't let your guard down just because a woman claims to be a Christian is involved in the church, can you? In verse 15, we see that the woman moves from the young man's stomach to his ego. Verse 15. So she hints at it. It's like, got a feast in my place. So What? Now I've come out to meet you. Oh, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. She flatters him, right? She's given him the impression that she has sought him out among the crowd and that her sole desire in that moment is to be with him. Oh, he's special. However, the reality is that the attention she's given him is due more to the fact that she thinks he's gullible. She's playing him. Just telling him what she thinks he wants to hear in order to selfishly get what she wants. I mean, it's manipulation. It's flattery. Again, we've said this before, you know, if we think that, are you great and worthy to be praised? Someone starts, you know, singing your praises and all that. It's like, sounds a little too good to be true. I mean, I'm, I'm flattered, but what do you really want? Wisdom, right? Discernment. Careful what pride does to you. Likes to eat that up. Mm. More, more just, yeah. You really desire me? All these men? And you think I'm the best looking, the most attractive? I, you were drawn to me? Wow. So, you can see that, right? The ego is a... <laughs> well, then she starts moving into different territories. She starts painting a vivid picture of her bedroom for him and it's a total sensory experience look what she says verse 16 i have spread my couch with coverings colored linens from egyptian 
linen. I have perfumed my bed with, with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Well, it's just a fine, elegant, luxurious home. All for you. <laughs> right? Pride says, yes. Yes, I, I, am, I am basically a king, aren't I? So, she, what is she saying here? Well, she's letting him know that her bed is high quality. It's soft. It's colorful. It's extremely comfortable. Not only that, but it smells incredible because she perfumed it with these, these popular fragrances from around the world. This is a scene of luxury. And to top it off, she offers him herself for a whole night of unbridled passion. Verse 18, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. You see how she, she dressed everything up. She buttered him up. She wanted to whet his appetite as much as possible. And then she makes the proposition. So up to this point, she's been describing for him an opportunity that she believes he will see as being too good to pass up. You'd be stupid to pass this up. Myrrh, aloes, cinnamon, Egyptian linen. Huh? Do you have that? A lot of people didn't even have beds. I mean, they slept on mats and everything. And this was luxury. This is wealth. It's a luxurious night of total indulgence that she's offering him. And guess what? It's all for free. Because he is just so special. For one night, you can live like a king. That's the appeal. That's the temptation. That's the, the pitch that she's given him. And the final thing that the woman does is offer the young man reassurance that he won't get caught. Right? Sounds nice. and I can't risk that. that are you serious? I can't, I can't do that. It's like, husband's gone. Verse 19, my husband is not at home. He's Not only is he not at home, he's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. Okay, it's like a business trip. At full moon, he'll come home. He's not coming back for a while. He's, he's out of the picture. By saying this, she's seeking to convince him that the risk of discovery is almost non-existent. There's always a risk, but she's, she's trying to downplay it so much that it's just kind of in the back of your mind. It's just, it's, it's non-existent almost. However, regardless of whether or not her husband comes home and finds out what happened, guess what? Their ways are always in full view of the Lord. The adulteress tries to separate deeds and consequences. She tries to separate those as far as possible. You can, you can take and indulge. You don't need to worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. But, Scripture says, God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Does it not? Psalm even earlier in, in Proverbs said, chapter 5, verse 21, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So it really is, Reality is that you're carrying, conducting yourself in full view of God, the eyes of the Lord. He's weighing the things that you're doing. He knows. But she wants to reassure him. Make him feel like there's 
no possible chance for consequences or repercussions. But sadly, the young man succumbs to her smooth words. He takes the pitch, sounds good. Verse 21, it says, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Once again, it's, it's her words. Solomon's pointing out it's her words that are, are most effective in leading the man astray. Because words can not only stimulate the senses. You saw that, right? I mean, she dressed provocatively. She grabbed him and kissed him, right? But man, those words painted this picture, stimulating at all the senses. Not only can words stimulate the senses, but they can also appeal to one's pride, right? They can offer reassurance. Words can justify sin, make a compelling case. Words have the power to persuade and to lead one astray. So men, don't let anyone convince you, any woman convince you. And, and ladies, like I said, I mean, the charmers, the seducers, they're everywhere. There are men that do that same thing, looking for victims. But men, especially to you, don't let any woman convince you that she has more to offer you than your wife. I mean, she's not the one who's made a covenant to love you for better or worse, for richer or poorer in sickness and in health until death do you part. She make that lifelong covenant with you? A forbidden woman's promises are empty and they're merely self-serving. One commentator says this, the temptress promises sexual love without erotic restraints, but she refuses to make the fundamental commitment of self to him that is required of true love. She just wants to use him, butter him up, tell him whatever she thinks he wants to hear, but she doesn't want to truly give herself to him. Even the sexual gratification that she claims she can give will pale in comparison no matter what she says, no matter how luxurious she might say her offering is, it will pale in comparison to that which comes from your wife and is blessed by God. Proverbs 5, let your fountain be blessed. It's rejoicing in the wife of your youth. That fountain will be blessed, divinely blessed. What can some other woman outside of your covenant relationship with your wife with whom you're one flesh, what can she offer you? Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies from another woman. Don't believe the lies that come through marketing. Don't believe the lies that come through cable or internet or any of those things that are trying to entice you and pull you away. Convince you somehow that, that you're missing out. Like you're, you're some dog in a kennel in a cage, like just looking out in your marriage. That's your marriage. You're not free. You don't get to do what you want. You're stuck. You're missing out. That's a lie. Man, marriage is the grace of life. It's a blessed relationship designed by God. And man, if we follow His wisdom and 
and how we relate to one another in that covenant relationship, woo, uh, the joy and the blessing, uh, it's, it's indescribable. It's unmatched. It's probably the, the greatest joy in a relationship this side of heaven. Human relationship. Here's the sorry fate of the young man who ended up believing the fleet, that the fleeting pleasures of sexual sin were too good to pass up. Verse 22, all at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Solomon compares the, this youth, this young man, to three animals. All of which, we, I mean, we still use expressions today. He's strong as an ox. Look at that young buck. He's going stag. There you go. He's free as a bird. I guess that, I mean, men and women. But still, you get the idea. Strong as an ox, going stag. He's a young buck. He's free as a bird. These animals may be strong. Agile, swift, but one thing they have in common is that they don't recognize a trap for what it is. So, in that sense, sorry if you like oxes or stags or birds, but they're dumb. They go straight into that trap. They don't have the discernment there. So, Solomon's point with these illustrations, it's stated at the end of verse 23. He does not know that it will cost him his life. That's the point he's making. As one commentator put it, Stupid animals see no connection between traps and death. And again, this was, we even saw this in Proverbs chapter 1, the thing he was saying about the birds. You know, the nets spread right in full view of them, and they'll just, they'll just go right into it. Like, what you doing there? Oh, that looks good. You know, some, some people try to interpret it, say, like, oh, oh, the bird, he sees you spreading the net, he's not going to fly into it because he ain't stupid. Well, no, the birds are stupid, they'll fly right into it. Stupid animals see no connection between traps and death. And morally stupid people see no con- connection between their sin and death. Between sin and, and destruction. Corruption. At the beginning of this lecture, Solomon told his son, keep my commandments and live. In verse 25, we see the commandments. I mean, he's, he's prepping him. He gives this account of this real-life story of what happened to someone who lacks sense. And now he's going to get to the exhortation. He's going to tell him, here's the counsel. Just one more reminder now. Now, sons, verse 24, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Here it goes, verse 25. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. So Solomon's primary exhortation to his son hasn't changed. He tells him to avoid her altogether. He's told him that before. Steer clear of her path. Don't just avoid her. Avoid her path. The way she would go. Don't even make a risk crossing paths with her. He must guard his heart and watch his steps. We have to remember, we're not as strong as we think we are, right? I mean, maybe we like to think that you know, I'm, you know, I'm trusted in the Lord. I'm maturing in my walk. I can, I can withstand that. I'm, I'm strong enough to resist that temptation when that temptation comes. And that's not the wisdom we get here at all. 
There's no qualifier there. He says, any of you, this would be to any one person, avoid her altogether. You stay far away. You sniff it out. You see anything. You run. You go the other direction. Take the long way home. You know? We're not as strong as we think we are, and it's wise for us, therefore, to be watchful. Watchful. So that we might keep ourselves out of situations in which there's even a possibility that we might be tempted. Vigilance. Watchfulness. Carefulness. And Solomon concludes with this final warning. Verse 26 and 27. So, following that command, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't, do not stray into her past, for many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. What a picture. That's vivid to show his son the reality of the consequences of indulgence in sexual sin, especially this sin of adultery. Countless men have fallen this way. Countless. Nothing new under the sun. This isn't some like age-old problem or you know, an ancient problem. It's, it's an age-old one that's continuing today. Countless men fall this way. Don't think that you'll be the one exception. Well, things will be different for me. I mean, sin can make us stupid. Sin will reduce us to just a dumb ox. And get compelled away, right? Because you didn't show the wisdom to just avoid that altogether. So again, we, we've talked about this with Proverbs. You know, you, you, can't, you can't live life and never face temptation. It's going to come, right? But as far as it depends on you, Avoid it, right? Don't put yourself, don't thrust yourself into those situations. Can I say something to the younger folk in here? If you're in junior high, senior high, hormones raging. How often, maybe you've done this before, but how often do you know where people put themselves in these, these stupid situations and then they wonder how, man, I was just, I was just weak. Well, you shouldn't have been doing a little date night in the basement, in the dark, on the couch with a blanket over you, watching a movie. What? And we fell asleep. And, you know, I mean, it just takes discernment, doesn't it? You're thrusting yourself in a, an almost impossible situation to deal with. You're not as strong as you think you are. God's called you to holiness and purity, and the wait is worth it. Wait till you find a woman one day and you court her and honor her and, and commit your life to her in the bond of marriage. And then, yeah, you're in for a surprise. So, brothers, sisters, equip yourselves with the wisdom of God. Trust in His Word. Submit to His Word. Walk in His ways. Don't follow the ways of the world. Don't Follow the ways of those who do not fear God and are under the enslaving power of sin. You're not. They're in darkness. You've been transformed out of, or transferred out of that. Your eyes have been opened. The bonds have been broken. You do not have to say yes to sin any longer. 
Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And I'll just say this. I made this comment uh, last time that this idea of this, this, uh, this tendency to maybe allow your eyes to wander, lustful looking, if we just look at the instructions we've been given in Proverbs to the men, to the husbands, to rejoice in your wife, get all your satisfaction from her, if you're not doing that, then you're setting yourself on that trajectory slowly towards adultery because you're essentially, little by little, creating a wedge in that relationship because you're not delighting in her. So you're, not, you're becoming less and less fond of her. Less and less do you desire her and then more susceptible we be to some woman who comes along promising you the world. And ladies, wives, primary command we see in the New Testament for how godly women are to conduct themselves in the marriage relationship is, is what? Well, yes, we're to love one another, but it's to submit to their husbands. Wives, respect your husbands. And that's probably one of the primary ways that you would set yourself on a trajectory further and further away from a sense of committedness and faithfulness to your spouse and towards the sin of adultery, marital unfaithfulness. You don't respect him. What do you think is going to happen of years of that? So we do what God's called us to do. We don't wait for the other one. Well, you know, he can, you know, he'll start uh, you know, loving me the way God's called him to, and then I might respect him. Or the other way around, right? We live as God's called us to. There's blessing in that. So, for those of you who are married, cling to one another. Love one another, serve one another, rejoice in one another, and thank God for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your wisdom. Thank You for opening our eyes to see just how dangerous and destructive sin is, especially sexual sin. It ruins families it destroys people it it pulls them further and further away from you into darkness and father you were you were lights you called us to walk in the light as you are in the light help us to equip ourselves to arm ourselves with your word with your wisdom may it dwell in us richly Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Help us to, to do what you've been telling us to do in, in this book of your wisdom to internalize the things that you're giving to us, the wisdom that you're giving to us, the instruction, the counsel that you are giving to us. Father, I pray for this church, this local body, for its purity, for those who are married, that they would be faithful to one another. That they might have a beautiful testimony of the transforming power of your grace and love in their marriages. Pray that we would all submit to the things you have called us to do. Submit to your word. For the husbands to love their wives as you called them to. And for the wives to submit to and respect their husbands as you called them to. Pray for your protection from the enemy and from the enticements in the world that would draw our affections away from you and our affections away from our spouse. 
Help us to be devoted to you, committed to you, and walk in faithfulness. Amen.